following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on what you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals during our spring Black Friday sale, like 19-ounce Bonnie vegetable and herb plants, four for $10. And pick up five bags of Scott's mulch in store only for just $10. Whatever's on your list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417 while supplies last. Not valid in Alaska or Hawaii. Scott's offer valid in store only. See store for details, U.S. only. The final joke is the president's going to put in headphones and pretend to listen to the Golden Girls theme song. And I reach into my pocket and I pull out what looks like a hairball made out of wires. I don't know really what happened, but I guess uh, I was so nervous that I just worried these headphones into like a ball, just a miserable tangle while I was waiting to go into the Oval Office. And I have no idea what to do. So I just hand the whole thing to the president of the United States. And uh, and he spends like 30 seconds untangling headphones in front of me he he shot me a little look and then he turned to hope hall the videographer and he he goes shoddy advance work welcome to the forbes under 30 podcast i'm steve goldblum your host on this show we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators Today we have David Litt with us. Currently, he's the head writer-producer at the Funny or Die's office in Washington, D.C. He's also the author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. At 24, he was a White House speechwriter during the Obama administration. David, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Well, we're glad to have you on. And I want to start with... um, the thing that I think everybody thinks about when they when they look at your bio, um, which is if you can paint as much uh, as vibrant a picture as possible, what happened uh, to you after college? Where did you go? What did you do? What did you want to do? Well, I um, most of the time when I was in college thought I was going to do comedy. I grew up in New York City. I did amateur stand-up comedy. I was like the weird 15-year-old at the comedy night. And in college, I did improv. And then I saw President Obama speak and just had did a total 180 and went into politics. I, I didn't think about it that way at the time. But after college, I drove to Ohio. I worked on the Obama campaign as a field organizer, which basically meant I called volunteers and got them out there knocking on doors, talking to voters. And then I moved to D.C. without any clear idea of what I wanted to do. And um, when I was in Washington for a while, I was quite possibly the worst intern in the entire District of Columbia. <laughs> uh, I talk about that a little in the book. We can go into it a little more if you want. Um, Where but, were you interning? Oh, I was interning at a crisis communications firm. <laughs> uh, and, and I had come from, from the Obama campaign, which was very idealistic and hopeful. And the crisis communications firm, uh, what the way I felt was about it like it scandal? was like uh, scandal? You know, with a lot less um, attractive people having sex with each other. But <laughs> okay, yeah. In, in other ways, sure. The thing that I found was that most of our clients who were in a crisis sort of deserved to be. Yeah. And they were uh, paying a firm because it was cheaper than doing the right thing and trying to make things right. Right. Not, 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 not so hopey and changey. It was not super hopey or changey. That's exactly right. And so I, it, was a, it was a real shock to the system, and I did not uh, handle that particularly well, I will say. I mean, I, I didn't love my employer at the time, but that's nothing compared to how badly I behaved. So I Was um, this like a K Street firm? 
this was it was a K, what I think would broadly be called a K Street firm. It wasn't on K Street, but I, for all intents and purposes, it was. And um, you know, there there's a lot of these in D.C. that I didn't really know about. You know, you kind of somebody who has experience from the political world in communications takes that experience to bear in the private sector. And I've worked for firms like that, right. and I do some of that work as a speechwriter now myself. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think it ends up being a sort of how do you pick which clients you work for and how are you making sure that, uh, right. yes, you're now in the private sector, you're making money, but you, you want to still be true to your values. You want to be doing something that makes the world a little better rather than a little worse. I, I have a confession to make. I was also in – what year was this when you were at DC, an intern in DC? This was in 2008. Okay, I was at the same time. I was an intern in DC. I was okay. possibly one of the worst interns. I actually was working <laughs> at a, a TV place, and I forgot to apply for the Emmys. Oh, that's really bad. And what I did was I stayed up all night and 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 wrote like ten a- Emmy submissions. Applied. We won an Emmy, and somebody said in in the Emmy thing, and like in inside the office, they go, "I just want to thank Steve for being on top of the Emmys." Yeah. And it's one of those I, classic examples where I'm like, people don't know the extent uh, of how much you can screw up and, and the way it works. Where, what, where were your, where did you fall short as an intern? Yeah, I just want to point out your uh, "I was a bad intern" story ends with um, you winning an Emmy for your employer. So uh, you know, I got you covered. <laughs> to, to I, walk us through walk us through yeah, yeah. so i i kind of hit this point i, I don't know it was a, a combination of like immaturity and principles that i couldn't quite define but mostly immaturity and i just decided i was i was going rogue and so i started um i started bringing in my laptop from home and i moved <laughs> out of my cubicle and i moved my office into the break room and i did that uh so that I could play Minesweeper and no one would be walking behind me to see that all I was doing at work right. all day was playing Minesweeper. And instead, people would walk into the break room and there would be an intern there kind of sullenly typing. And then when that didn't – I think I wanted to get caught, right? And I th- yeah. and then when that didn't work and I didn't get any, any attention for that, um, I started only answering work-related questions in analogies to the game of Minesweeper I was playing at the time. So – Someone would say, like, uh, have you written that memo? And I would say, well, you know, it's almost done, but it's like at the end of a game of Minesweeper when you've got just three mines left, but there's five spaces, so you know the stakes are really high, and you're really just – got to solve it. So the memo might take a little while. It's interesting. You're painting a very clear picture of your of your smooth path to the West Wing. Yes, yeah, so this is exactly how every White <laughs> House – They came into that crisis committee and they said, we want to hire him. Yeah, so no, I don't recommend that. Right. Uh, and I will say, I also at the time applied for a White House internship, which is a good way to get a White House job, and I did not get it. Okay. Um, and I and I later worked in the White House and met our, you know, tons of interns, and totally agreed with that decision. Like we we would, you know, I was this was a very smart move on the part of the internship office. But so I ended up taking I wouldn't say a super roundabout route to the White House, but it wasn't a sort of clear cut, you know, come from the campaign get a White House job. I, what I ended up doing was I met. Um, a friend of a friend, actually a friend's brother, was a speechwriter, and he said, well, you know, one of our interns was working on something, didn't go great. Do you right. want to try to write this blog post for Senator John Kerry over the weekend? And I said, okay, I'll do that. That was like my, uh, you know, what you were talking about with your Emmy submissions, that was kind of my staying up late and doing that um, for a weekend. And they liked that. 
And that led to an internship, not in the Senate, but with a speechwriting firm called West Wing Writers in D.C. And then two years after that, uh, it was really one of those things where you hope that you have some talent and you hope that you're good at what you do, but then you also need to get lucky. Mm -hmm. And in my case, it was um, Valerie Jarrett, who is the president's senior advisor, had been looking for a speechwriter. And my best friend, the president's best friend. Yeah, I mean, so they – so she – and I talk about this in the book that – she was one of the few people in the White House who knew President Obama before he was this rising political star. Right. I mean, she met uh, Michelle, then Robinson, first, and uh, Michelle introduced her to her fiance Barack, and she really was, you know, was like family to the Obamas and vice versa ever since. And so um, she was looking. She she ran the Office of Public Engagement in the White House, and she needed a speechwriter for all the public appearances she was making, and she hadn't found the right person and they basically said, you know, we need to fill this job and you have good references. So right. if you want, you can kind of get a, put in a place where you're really the only applicant. And I said, yeah, that sounds really good. I'll do that. So, um, I, you know, I think for me, I ended up at the, the White House in part because I got some second chances that maybe I didn't deserve and then got a chance to learn something sort of specific. Speech writing is right. not a super common skill. And then I got lucky enough that the right thing opened at the right moment. How close – how similar is speech writing to what you were doing at some of those speakeasy performances you did or stand-up comedy where it's not so much about the text but it's about the delivery? Well, the it is interesting. Some people become speech writers because they could never possibly imagine themselves on stage. And I don't have that problem or maybe – I have the opposite problem, which is, you know, I've done performing. I, I've been telling some stories with the moth for uh, right. the NPR show. Um, you mentioned speakeasy and stand up. And so I don't think it's that similar because it's someone else's words, it's someone else's voice, but it sometimes is nice to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the person delivering the remarks. So if you can think about, okay, if I were reading this off the page, would I get the timing here? Probably right. not you know, that's a thing you, you can remember or to say, this is a moment when I could kind of use a beat and I want to remind people what's going on because I've just said something that is a kind of weighty idea. Uh, it is also very different writing a policy speech than writing a sort of funny story or delivering a funny story on stage. So there's a whole nother set of concerns that, that go into it. I know you, you know, you spent a lot of your time writing domestic policy. Um, when you're writing for somebody like John Kerry, is it difficult to inject humor when when that's the person delivering the speech so uh, i will say that blog post was my my one and only writing experience for john Kerry, and that was about climate change so it was not super funny but (laughs) uh i you know it's interesting there's a lot of value in injecting humor into those speeches or finding ways to help politicians who are not normally thought of as funny be funny. I mean, I, I remember John Kerry did a gridiron dinner, which is one of those sort of joke dinners yeah, in right. D.C. And um, Steve Crouppen, who was his speechwriter at the time, and a couple of other people worked on that. And he was really funny. And I think it was one of those moments when you kind of get to uh, surprise people a little bit. So um, to John Kerry's credit, he has he has that gear. Um, I, don't, I don't know if uh, it came out as often as it did with President Obama, but uh, with the with the right writer who understands the person, you can you can't make anybody funny, but you can make anybody funnier than you might expect. And we'll be right back after this quick break. The Forbes Under Thirty podcast is brought to you by LifeLock. 
Equifax recently announced a breach of 143 million identities, and you need to take steps to get protection. Be among the millions who trust their identity theft protection to LifeLock. Go to LifeLock.com. Use promo code Forbes for 10% off. Well, let's let's pick up on your on your path. You, you have the relationship with Valerie Jarrett, and she kind of lines you up um, on this track to become a speechwriter. What was your first encounter like with President Obama? Well, when I was working for for Valerie and for some of the other senior staff, I also got to basically sit in on the presidential speechwriting meetings. So John Favreau, who was the chief speechwriter at the time, was very nice about that. He basically said, "You can." shadow our team when we all get together and meet, even though you're not a presidential speechwriter. And then every so often I started picking up little things that no one else wanted to do yeah. because they weren't really that important. You know, not um, like a state of the union. That's that's a big deal. You know, a sort of happy birthday to someone's friend in Chicago or a video about Thanksgiving. That's something that most speechwriters after a couple of years are ready to hand to somebody else. Yeah. So the first time I met the president, I was working on a speech writing video. Um, it, it was for Thanksgiving. It was kind of a Happy Thanksgiving America video. Uh, and I had never written a video for the president before. So I threw myself into this thing. I mean, I spent all week working on it. And I went to the diplomatic room of the White House, which is one of the uh, – it's really maybe my favorite room in the White House. It is this beautiful mural. It looks very fancy. I was trying to act like I've been there before. Uh, the woman behind the camera look, took one look at me and said, this is your first time here, right? And I was like, yep, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I I cracked immediately. But anyway, we're, we're waiting. And finally, uh, President Obama comes into the room and he's standing up. So we all stand up and he sits down. So we all sit down <laughs> and I figure this is it. We're going to watch him tape. And then suddenly uh, Hope Hall, the videographer, stops him and says, actually, Mr. President, before you start, this is David. It's the first video he's ever written for you. <laughs> yeah. And President Obama looks at me and he's like, oh, how's it going, David? And I remember having exactly one thought in that moment. I did not realize we were going to have to answer questions. <laughs> and then I literally blacked out. Like I have absolutely no idea what I told the president the first time we met. I could not remember a thing. Um, so, uh, you know, people would be like, Oh, how was it? Did you meet him? I'd be like, yeah. And they were like, what did he say? And I was like, how's it going? And they were like, what did you say? And I was like, I don't know. I blacked out. Um, so, <laughs> so it was maybe not the most auspicious start, but, uh, but luckily I guess I can't have any said anything too bad. Cause I, I didn't get fired. Right. Well, it, it kind of reminds me of that Jerry Seinfeld line with him when they did the comedians in cars together. And he says, how difficult is it for people, for you to have a conversation with people? Oh yeah, it must must be one of the most difficult things, right? I mean, and and the the funny thing is you could tell he was kind of used to this. The first time I was ever in the Oval Office, I was slightly better. I did not black out, but I was pretty similarly yeah. tongue-tied. And it was again just me and Hope Hall the videographer. And the president kept giving Hope these looks like, "Oh, one of these again." Like, so, you know, someone comes in here, we assume that he's not truly terrible at his job because he made it this far, but He's certainly not uh, demonstrating any of those skills at the moment. He's mostly just kind of babbling. Right. And, uh, and, and I, I did hear to my credit that it was not just, you know, like 25-year-olds who were in way over their head who kind of fell apart the first time they met President Obama. We, you know, you'd hear about like celebrities or, or people who are pretty famous in their own right and they meet the president and just lose it. Right. Um, so it's, uh, you know, um, I, uh, I talked to someone who was an, an actor 
and uh, at one of these correspondence dinners, and he he met the president for the first time, and he had this ashen look on his face, and he turned to me and he was like, "I met President Obama, and the first thing I said was, so this is like your Comic Con, huh?" And he was like, "Why did I say that? Oh, I have no idea why I said that." And I was like, "Don't worry, it happens to the best of us. You didn't black out. That's a win." <laughs> well, how did you get over that? I mean, and, and how did the relationship with him evolve and what did it look like in the end when you're, you know, a veteran in that role? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, President Obama, t- to his credit, uh, he's an intimidating person just because of who he is. Yeah. He was always assumed that if you're in the Oval talking to the president, you must have a good reason for being there. He wanted to listen to what you had to say. So, uh, you know, by the end of my time in the White House, I was not like buddies with President Obama. I wasn't in the inner circle or anything like that. But I had kind of gotten to the point where it was a part of my job that every so often there would be edits to a speech or there would be something that we needed to discuss about some upcoming remarks or especially with the jokes for the correspondence dinner. And I'd go into the Oval, um, usually with the chief speechwriter, Cody Keenan or someone else, and see what the president wanted to say and take furious notes and go back and make those edits. Right. And it's one of the things that I learned at the White House. It's amazing how quickly something can become somewhat normal. I mean, it's never like I walked through the gates of the White House and was like, oh, that's no big deal. But it was the first couple times I, I walked into the gates of the White House or I walked into the Oval Office. I mean, I could barely breathe. And then after a certain amount of time, your body and your mind just adjusts and says, okay, this is a weird part of our reality, <laughs> but this is reality now. So we're just right. going to go with this. And and thank goodness, because otherwise you never could do your job. One of the things, I mean, I, I listened to that, um, some of your former colleagues on Pod Save America, yeah, and um, I know one of the things they said was when the when the healthcare website uh, went down, he was pissed, and they said that was one of the first times they really saw him pissed. Was there a moment where you ever saw him upset, or you felt like you were really in on something in a circle, and it, it, things got uncomfortable? You know, not really. I think so. So um, John Favreau, who uh, is on uh, Pod Save America, was the chief speechwriter I was talking about. I mean, he has the kind of relationship with the president where he would see something like that. Yeah, Um, I certainly wouldn't. What I saw, though, was the way that jokes can get used to kind of let out little bits of emotion or frustration, uh, because one of the things, you know, the president Obama was always self-deprecating in his humor. But with that comes the license to kind of tell a little truth in a way that you don't usually get to in politics. Right. So it was fun to see the different ways that he would sort of say, all right, this is kind of funny, but like, let's make this a little sharper here. Let's make this a little stronger. There was one uh, joke he about Dick Cheney that he, he took out the, I had tried to write a sort of, you know, not too sharp punchline, just something a little with a light touch. And he took that out and he wrote next to it, uh, you know, after making it, wanting something a little sharper, he said, it's Cheney. Like that was his comment. So I think you see these <laughs> these moments where he, in a fun way, got to kind of let out some of the natural frustration that comes with being constantly criticized by people, uh, you know, sometimes not entirely in good faith. So I think I got to see maybe the, the more fun side of that um, and uh, maybe skip some of the, the awkwardness that you're describing. Well, you, you've said before speeches aren't meant to be – read. They're meant to be heard. So what was your process like when you're putting a speech together? Are you acting it out? Or are you watching old footage of him? Um, well, it's not like I, I had an Obama impression that I would do you know, <laughs> in my office. But I will, this is something that came from my time doing stand-up. When I did stand-up in high school, I had one of those old tape recorders, yeah. um, a cassette, and I'd walk around trying to tape material because I didn't want to write it down. It didn't make sense because it's meant to be heard. 
And when I was writing speeches, I would step outside the White House and I'd take my phone and I would record usually before I'd sit down and write. I'd, I'd kind of walk in circles around the block talking to myself, which either makes you an insane person or a presidential speechwriter, depending on what happens after you're done with that recording. And I, um, I, I always felt like that was helpful. Uh, you know, the other thing that was also great writing for a president is there's so much footage of that person. You can go back and listen to what they've said before and you can hear, you know, what's the inflection that they liked. And you can right. get a sense of this is a line they really enjoyed saying this was one maybe that they they liked. But, you know, I'm not going to repeat that joke because they didn't really seem into it. I, I think you may have had one of my favorite all time lines. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong and please correct the line if I butcher it. Okay. Uh, but it's something that like being president's hard. I've got to balance the budget, protect everyone, and still find times to still find time to pray five times a day. Uh, and that was the right line. I don't think that was mine. I, I think that was John Lovett, okay. um, he, <laughs> one of the the guys on Pod Save America, and he ran the correspondence center process when he was at the White House and he left in 2011. Um, well, so we'll it, give Love it or leave it the uh, the credit then. Yes, exactly. And, um, you know, one of the things we were talking about, some of those frustrations, and it was nice because the stuff you would hear, even when I was on the campaign trail, you would go to the doors and talk to voters. And sometimes they would say, I'm worried about the economy. But sometimes they would say, I'm worried that the president is, or, you know, then the candidate, I'm worried that Obama is a terrorist. Or, you know, I just am right. concerned because my pastor said he's the Antichrist. And you would hear the, and this kind of wormed its way into our politics. So the correspondence dinner was one of the only ways. The president got to address that and make fun of it without lending it credence because it was – you know, I, every president is the subject of some rumor, but this was on a whole other level. Well, let's look at a lot. What, what is – is there a joke or a line that you're most proud of? <laughs> uh, you know, there's a bunch that I like. Well, the, the line that I – a line I really love that I always go back to is from the 2013 Correspondence Dinner and – Who hosted uh, that? Uh, what? Who was the host of that one? That was – I think that was Conan O'Brien. Okay, right, right, right. And uh, it was right after – this was a very different time for the Republican Party. They had just released their 2012 autopsy of the election. The number one uh, takeaway was we have to reform immigration. We have to do something to help people uh, you know, find a path to citizenship. Right. So this seems like 100 years ago, but it was 2013. <laughs> and President Obama said one thing Republicans all agree on is they need to do a better job reaching out to minorities. Call me self-centered, but I can think of one minority they could start with. Right, <laughs> and, and I just I love that joke partly because I feel like it did just kind of capture that moment. It captured both the understanding among Republicans that they right. were doing something really bad by not doing a better job reaching out to anyone outside their base, but also captured the fact that they were totally unable to do it and they were unable to work with this president, um, which would have been a really obvious place to start. So I like those jokes that are funny but also have a kernel of truth in them. Well, you know, one of the big takeaways for me in, in this change of the guard is when you listen to Obama, it was always about us. It was always about the people and that it, it really is a stark departure from the the current president. Um, were That's you, putting it mildly, yeah. Yeah. I mean were you, were you aware of that in your writing so that everything – how intentional was that? That was absolutely intentional. I mean one of the things that I learned very early on was – you're going to have to use the word I if you're the president, but as much as possible when you can replace I with we, you should do it. And that's because that's the way that President Obama saw the country and it's the way he had always campaigned. So if it became too much 
like he was taking credit, then it didn't it didn't work. Right. He didn't want to do that. And it also he understood that if you're the president of the United States, you're giving a speech, you you're running the country. People get that you're in charge. You don't have to constantly remind them how great you are. Um, you know, you're the one with you know hail to the chief playing. So we would always be taking out you know those eyes and replacing them with we's. And the other thing that President Obama really loved to do was end speeches with stories of what we would call real people, which is a little bit of a, you know, as a term of art, it's a little bit weird. But what it just means is people in the country who are not in government, they're not thinking about politics every day, but who somehow represent the best of what we can do together. Right. And right. some of my favorite moments in the White House were talking to somebody who is, you know, a Republican in Georgia, but his kids uh, friends' parents are undocumented immigrants, and he thinks we need immigration reform. Or talking to like a small business owner who used to be a work a minimum wage job and thinks we need to raise the minimum wage and does that for his workers. And meeting these people, and I realize I sort of slip into like talking points mode when I talk about them, but these people are are real, and they're um, getting to to meet people like that all across the country was really special. And we'll be right back after this quick break. The Equifax breach that impacted roughly 143 million consumers just got bigger. They've now added 2.5 million people to that list. If that's not bad enough, Yahoo announced that their 2013 breach impacted all 3 billion user accounts, triple the original estimate. You should know, once your personal information has been exposed, it doesn't just go away. Identity thieves can buy your info on the dark web for months, even years after a breach. They can use it to commit crimes in your name, even steal from your 401k. Now is the time to get protection. Sign up for LifeLock today. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but LifeLock can help you see more than if you're just monitoring your credit. Go to LifeLock.com or call 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use promo code Forbes, that's Forbes, for 10% off your LifeLock membership. Visit LifeLock.com and save 10% now. Hi, I'm Allie Hilfiger. And I'm Steve Hash. And we're the hosts of Sit-In on Podcast One. Join us as we travel around the world visiting creative people in their homes, studios, and the places they work to discuss their story process and basically everything in between. We're sitting down with the biggest names in the world of fashion, art, and music like Tommy Hilfiger, Gigi Hadid, Brian Adams, Martin Lawrence Ballard, and Zana Roberts. Check out new episodes of Sit-In every week exclusively on the Podcast One app, Apple Podcasts, or PodcastOne.com. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. I always wonder whose full-time job it was to curate those people because you see them in, in all the speech. They go, I'm yeah. just reminded of Jenny in right. uh, Indiana. Right. And, and one thing to, to his credit, the, I feel like uh, President Obama didn't use a lot of artifice with it. He usually he wouldn't say like, well, that reminds me of – he would just <laughs> yeah. kind of be like, I'm going to tell you a story. Right. And he liked telling stories. Right. You know, right. The, the way we would find those stories is uh, a lot of people would write letters to the White House and we would learn about them that way. Uh and so we had a terrific correspondence team that's sorting all these letters and they would uh, flag them for speech writing and say, hey, this sounds like a really good person. 
Um, you might want to talk to them if there's ever a speech that kind of fits that topic or that area. And he actually read – oh, sorry. Go, go on. Oh, I was just going to say the other thing that was really helpful is looking through local news because mm. if the president's going to go to, say, La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, being able to look through you know all the news that's coming out of La Crosse in the last few months and often um, those are places that are covering these inspiring stories. And so you get to, to call somebody. And the nice thing is if you call someone and say, hi, I'm calling from the White House. Generally, they call you back. So right. it's, it's usually you can start to, to get to reach people once you know who you want to reach. You said the president gen- doesn't change who you are, reveals who you are. What did you mean by that? Uh, I think – well, I think uh, I think Michelle Obama said that. Um, but she was right. Oh, oh sorry. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I'm attributing that to you. Yeah. I, 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 think, uh, I think that was from her 2012 convention speech and it was such a – it was such a nice line and Sarah Hurwitz, one of my colleagues, uh, worked with her on that speech. And the one of the things that I think you do see in the White House, is, and and particularly being a speechwriter, a lot of politics is about spin, and I don't mean to pretend it's not. And part of the book is about that balance. Mm-hmm. But on some level, truth has a way of sneaking out. And the reason that President Obama, certainly in my opinion, sounded like a reasonable, thoughtful person who cared a lot about America and had a real sense of who we are and where we need to go is because that's who he is. That's who he was as president. Um, the reason, in my opinion, our current president does not sound like those things is because that's who he is. And I think that gave me more mm-hmm. confidence in the political process. Like, yes, absolutely. Politicians can be super fake, but ultimately there's some essential truth that over time bubbles to the surface. And I think that's an important thing to remember. Why is the correspondence dinner so difficult for comedians and why did it seem so easy for President Obama every single year? <laughs> well, I'd like to think one of the reasons it seemed easy was that there were a lot of us behind the scenes doing a lot of work. Uh, so that, you know, we, we would write a couple hundred jokes and whittle it down to about 30. Of course, the biggest reason it seemed easy is that President Obama has really good timing as a comedian. And this was not the hardest thing. You know, this was not the toughest room he was going to face. This was not the hardest part of his job or even usually of like that weekend. So uh, he was at a little bit of an unfair advantage. And I think the reason it's a tough room for comedians, there's really two reasons. One is it's a very strange room. I mean, you've got uh, sort of professional Democrats, professional Republicans, a lot of journalists. And what journalists find funny can be a little bit of a tough nut to crack. And then you have a lot of Hollywood celebrities. And that's a very strange audience. And knowing you want to, <laughs> you want to be edgy and you want to push it, but knowing exactly where to push it is uh, – it, it, people don't always get that balance right. And the other thing I would say is um, we were used to writing speeches where you don't get a chance at a dress rehearsal. And most performers get to workshop something in a room. They get to do it in front of an audience. Right. And so we knew sort of, okay, when we're writing something, we're writing it assuming that the first time it's delivered is the only time it's delivered, and that's when the stakes are highest. So it made it a little bit easier for us to to guess which jokes were worth putting in and which ones we're taking out. And the other thing I will say is, you know, President Obama is a tough act to follow. I think with a different right. president, Stephen Colbert, for example, did quite well, and Hassan Minaj did uh, an amazing job at this year's correspondence dinner. When no he was president. All- <laughs> Yeah, no president at all. How um, – when you hear people say that in 2011 when Seth Meyers hosted and everybody railed on on uh, Donald Trump, um, how, how, how much do you buy that that really 
changed the, the course of his uh, pursuit for the White House, that that was the turning point, as, 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 so, as so many people are quick to say. So I was about four weeks into my White House job then. I was uh, sitting in the, in the back um, of the room because um, that was not a year I was running the process. That was when uh, John Lovett was still doing it. Yep. And I, so I got to just watch Trump turn bright red and look extremely wasn't even like it wasn't even angry it was like somebody just sort of collapsed all of their emotions inward it was a pretty it was a pretty strange look if you see that on like c-span and i I think the conventional wisdom is that's the moment when he decides to run but i think actually if you look at it it's not like president obama decided to make fun of donald trump for no reason donald trump had been basically leading this birther revival movement saying that president obama was born in kenya saying that the birth certificate is fake all over Fox News, and uh, he was getting all this attention that he loves. And I think that's actually the thing that the Correspondence Dinner did even more than, than make Donald Trump seek revenge. I think he was jealous because I think it was that moment when this is a room of media elites, mm-hmm. Hollywood stars, and political VIPs, and they're all laughing and just enjoying the president. And I think what Donald Trump wants more than anything is the approval of the people who were in that room that night. And for a, a moment, he was like, oh, this is how I get it. You know, I, I, they, they love this guy. And what he didn't realize is that's one night. Right. Most of the time, it's not that easy. And also, you know, you, you got to do things that people may not love. And that's part of being president. That's so interesting because when I watched that and just reading about Trump, I'm, I've, I've interviewed Platon, who was the, you know, the photographer and he does all the presidential portraits. And he said a line about Trump was – he asked Trump, he said, do you ever get upset that there's so much chaos around you? And he said, I am the chaos. I am the storm. That no, that's comforting. That, that, exactly. But that he loves – being at the center of that. So my takeaway was he must love that the president is devoting six minutes to him, whether it's, uh, you know, good or, I mean, anything. Um, I I don't think so, actually. I think um, that moment, I agree, Trump loves chaos and thrives on chaos, Mm -hmm. but he thrives on chaos because that's where he can exert control. Um, He has sort of mostly because he inherited a ton of money and has a lot of good non-disclosure agreements that he's made his employers uh, sign, he has a lot of power over people. And so when there's chaos, when there's no system, he rises to the surface. Right. This was the opposite. This was a moment when everybody you want ever to enjoy, there was no chaos. There was a, absolutely everyone knew exactly what was going on. I mean, the president of the United States had been uh, sort of slandered repeatedly by this guy and now he was making him look like an idiot on live TV in front of the most important people in the country. Um, that, that's not chaos. That's like – that's harsh. Right. And I think, uh, I think Trump did not enjoy that. All right. Well, listen. The wide shot was too hard for me to really judge on C-SPAN. <laughs> you, can't, you don't really see anything. <laughs> you know, no, it, it's true. It's, it's the, uh, he's just sort of know, squatting there. Right. Well, you can see that he's trying very hard because the, that's the other thing I will say. Is that the obvious thing to do? There is you just laugh at yourself. Yeah. I mean, that's what what Bush did when Stephen Colbert uh, told some pretty oh, tough God, jokes at his expense in 2006. That's still, still one of the most stunning performances ever. It, it was extraordinary. I one of my uh, favorite moments at the White House um, was that I, I got to meet Stephen Colbert at a I think a Kennedy Center Honors speech. Oh, yeah. And I got to say, listen, um, you know, just so you know, for the last like three or four years, my biggest fear has been that someone will do to us what you did to George W. Bush. Um, and he was very gracious about that. But 
it, it is true. I always worried because that a, a comedian would uh, take some shots that really landed. Um, I always but, wondered, did they just not know who Stephen Colbert was? I, I bet they didn't really. I mean, it was just when he, he had been a correspondent on The Daily Show. We're, we are now well outside my realm of expertise. We're just speculating. Yeah, but, yeah. You and me were in high school. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Uh, but he uh, he had uh, yeah that's right yeah I was uh, no I was a uh, I was a sophomore or junior in college okay. and like so he was our hero I mean that was that was a big moment yep and he um, it was when he had just left the Daily Show he just started his own show it was kind of gaining momentum but it wasn't the thing that we look back on and say oh that was the Colbert Report and um, the other thing that was just happening at the time was YouTube so. It wasn't just that right. Colbert delivered that that set of remarks. It was that the next day, uh, you know, hypothetically, those of us who were juniors in college and weren't going to class could spend that time watching right. exactly what he said on YouTube and being like, "Oh man, this is awesome!" and sharing it with our friends. And I think it was a very early glimpse into how much the internet was going to change those moments. That's right. That's probably one of the first viral speeches ever. I mean, in two thousand five. Yeah, definitely of that kind. I mean, that was a, uh, you know, it was. <laughs> sorry, I'm like I'm like losing. Uh, I'm I'm sitting here reminiscing right now. How <laughs> well, great let, that was to watch. I'll bring us back. I'll bring us back. Yeah, bring us back um, to the present. Let me bring us back, and let me ask you: when when they're shooting between two ferns in the uh, White House, are you slipping aside and, and saying, "Listen, guys, I'm I'm getting out of here." I want to come to Funny or Die. How did that go down? How did you decide to, to leave this coveted job, uh, uh, you know, on Pennsylvania Avenue and go to their DC bureau for Funny or Die? Yeah, well, so I, I did meet uh, Mike Farah, who is now our CEO. At the time, he was Funny or Die's ambassador of lifestyle, which is a <sighs> great job title. God. And he came to the White House and basically said, "We want to do something, and we don't know what." But he was just available and persistent, and we sort of thought that seems a little crazy. And then when uh, healthcare.gov didn't go great, we the, the comms department was kind of ready to throw this Hail Mary, and they reached out to Funny or Die in Between Two Ferns. Now, I write about this in the book. I was sure this was a terrible idea. I was absolutely certain it was gonna, <laughs> the president looked bad, we were going to look bad, no one was going to sign up for healthcare. Um, my book is mostly about why I'm glad that nobody in the White House listened to me about big moments. <laughs> And this is one of those big moments. So, uh, you know, obviously I was totally wrong. 11 million people watched this video in the first day. Um, but at the time, I wasn't writing jokes for that. I was kind of the annoying policy person saying, oh, and the little serious part about healthcare, maybe you replace this line with that line. I mean, I was not right. super involved in it. Um, but one of the things that happened is Funny or Die, kind of independently of the White House, then realized there's this real potential to do comedy that is legitimately funny, that goes viral but that also has some broader social purpose. Mm -hmm. And Brad Jenkins, who was the uh, sort of, he was the White House person in charge of outreach to celebrities, which if you can't be an ambassador of lifestyle, be that. Like that's another good job. <laughs> yeah, and, except except right now. Right, right now, right. <laughs> it's, it's dried up a little. <laughs> right, right, right now, yeah. uh, you know, Omarosa is toiling <laughs> away trying to reach out to a celebrity and, and probably getting the reaction she deserves. But um, at the time, Good job. And Brad left to start this new office and be their executive producer. And then um, I was getting ready to leave the White House. And one of the, the things about 
working at the White House. It's an amazing job, but you know that no matter how much you love it, it's going to end at some point because right. of term limits. And so you're always you're never thinking I'm going to be here 20 years and you know get a gold watch or something like that. You're sort of always thinking about when does it feel like the right time to move on. And for me, that was uh, the beginning of 2016. And when that happened, I, I knew I wanted to work on this book. I felt like I had these fun stories to tell about the times I embarrassed myself in front of POTUS. I felt like I had this <laughs> sort of perspective as somebody who started, you know, I wanted to write about what it was like to be young and not that important in the White House instead of most White House books, including some really good ones, are written by VIPs. And so I knew I wanted to do that. And uh, then Farah reached out and said, well, if you're going to stay in D.C. and you're going to write a book, you can also at the same time do creative work for our D.C. office. And that was kind of how I ended up at Funny or Die. And I already knew them and I knew how uh, how good their work was from Between Two Ferns. And I had obviously kind of kept in touch ever since. Right. So it wasn't like a like a real revolving door situation. Um, but it was the kind of thing where you get to meet somebody in this context and you get to see them at their best and hopefully vice versa. And then uh, from there you, you stay in touch and hopefully new opportunities arise. I mean since you mentioned it, can you tell us uh, your favorite, most embarrassing, cringeworthy moment in front of uh, the president? Yeah. Um, oh, man. I'm trying to think about uh, – <laughs> there's, there's a few – Good ones. The one I, I always come back to is, is that first Oval Office meeting in the White House. I'm 25. Uh, I have never stepped foot there before. And um, I, I look at President Obama and I'm there to explain a birthday card that he's going to sign for Betty White and we're going to film a little <laughs> skit because she's turning 90 years old. And the joke is really funny. Um, Fabs and I came up with this joke and it's uh, Dear Betty, you're so young and full of life. I can't believe you're turning 90. In fact, I don't believe it. Please send a copy of your long-form birth certificate to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C. That's great. So It's a great joke. I am ready to explain it to the president, and I look at him, and what comes out is kind of like I'm trying to ask for directions but in Spanish. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the nouns and the verbs are there, but there's nothing else. I just well, can say, you like, that for us? years old. Very funny. Está bien? <laughs> And was, you turned into it, Gene Wilder. Yeah, it was. It, it, I mean, I just totally blew it. And then I, um, I managed to. Uh, I, I have a second birthday card I want him to sign for a shot, which it turns out we do not need. I'm making a long story short here, but he basically points out that like my big uh, idea, which is to bring two birthday cards, was totally useless, uh, and not in a mean way either. You could be mad, but just in this way of like, aren't you aware of? how dumb that is. And I was like, yeah, okay, fair point. Put the card back in my pocket. And, uh, and I should be clear. He didn't say that. It was just pretty obvious. Yeah. And then, um, and then after that, the final joke is the president's going to put in headphones and pretend to listen to the golden girls theme song. And I reach into my pocket and I pull out what looks like a hairball made out of wires. Um, I oh. don't know really what happened, but I guess uh, I was so nervous that I just worried these headphones into a, a, like a fall, just a miserable tangle while I was waiting to go into the Oval Office. And I have no idea what to do. So I just hand the whole thing to the president of the United States. And uh, and he spends like 30 seconds untangling headphones in front of me. Did he, did he shoot you a look, a little side he, eye? He, he shot me a little look and then he turned to Hope Hall, the videographer, and he, he goes, shoddy advance work. And he does this in this way, 
And it is, it is one of the things that I saw. I saw this a few times. And it was always very impressive that he could let you know simultaneously that a he's just joking, and b he is not even a tiny bit joking. Oh my and god! It was. It, I mean, I just I almost fell to pieces in that moment. But then, um, I, I so I'm I'm sure that this whole thing is ruined, and uh, and <laughs> and President Obama says, you know, should I bob my head in time to the music? Would that be funnier? And I would say, yeah. And I'm a little frustrated because it's like my job to think about what would be funnier. And the president was totally right; that would be funnier. And this is going terribly. And he stops us and says, well, hang on. If I'm going to bob my head in time to the music, does anyone know how the music goes? Oh, no. Does anyone know the Golden Girls theme song? Oh, God. And so I look at Hope, and Hope doesn't say anything. So President Obama looks at Hope, and Hope doesn't say anything. So President Obama looks at me. <laughs> and suddenly, I know exactly what I can do for my country. And so I'm standing there in the Oval Office, and I look at the president, and I say, bump, 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 thank you for being a friend. Bump, 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 travel down the road and back again. And, uh, and you know, so that was my equivalent of saving the day. I that sang the Golden Girls theme song to the president in the Oval Office. And I've always wondered, there was a Secret Service agent right outside. But he <laughs> and I've always wondered what he thought was going on, where he just like, here's a bunch of embarrassed, like totally, you know, directions, but in Spanish, total nonsense going terribly and then just like some weirdos in the golden girls theme song. Um, but that's, uh, so that is, that is one of the stories from the book, but the nice thing, I guess, depending on your perspective was there was enough embarrassing moments that I could fill a book with them. So, <laughs> well, David, thanks. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was uh, this was really fun. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under 30. That's the number 30 at podcastone.com. Do you want to be great at reading body language, developing persuasion and influence, as well as master rapport and social interaction? What if I told you that you would learn from top performers like NBA superstar Shaquille O'Neal, former CIA director Michael Hayden, and brilliant thinkers like Dirty Jobs Mike Rowe? Take a minute right now and subscribe to the Art of Charm podcast with me, Jordan Harbinger, and you'll hear how I pull out the secret psychology, life experience, and wisdom that can only be learned from them. You'll hear Shaq talk about how to manage your career and how to know who to trust when everyone's out to get something from you. You'll discover how to think critically from Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson and even how Tony Hawk's life as a skateboard icon will influence how you think about your career and relationships in a whole new way. This show is for you if you want to outcompete, outperform, and outthink everyone around you. And it's the only place you'll get practical, applicable strategies from every single episode. Since you're all about learning from the absolute best, download and subscribe for free right now and upgrade your brain four times a week at podcastone.com or in the Podcast One app. Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right, too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, U.S. only. 
At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.